0: We're joined on the show by Lauren Hogman, partner with BTZ Law, and friend of the show, Lauren. It's been a while. Nice to have you on again. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Good. Yourself. So I Good. want to talk about this. Um, this was implemented by the Harper government in 2013. It's a law that makes people convicted of crimes pay surcharges to help victims. Right. Now it's been deemed as of today unconstitutional. But what was the what was the whole law there for originally?
1: Well, I mean, it, it actually had a, a really good purpose. I mean, the, 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 it's, it was to raise funds for victim support services and of increasing offenders accountability to the victims of crime, to the community in general. But unfortunately, or fortunately, but depending on what side you're on, the Supreme Court of Canada has said, um, no, that this basically is a cruel and unusual punishment under the Charter, Section 12 of the Charter. Very few cases ever fall under that, but they say that it, it causes harm to people, uh, uh, for example, some to suffered uh, disproportionate financial consequences, regardless of their moral culpability. So, for example, you know, it's not just somebody who may be uh, who may have been found guilty of a very violent offense against somebody, but it could just be somebody who uh, is convicted of a of a shoplifting of a theft under uh, they would still be subject to a victim surcharge and uh, and then the other part of it is because it has a threat of incarceration if if you don 't pay it uh, people have to live with that threat and um and it you know a lot of times what ends up happening is these people get targeted by collection efforts mm. and um so it would it, would,
0: it almost uh force you to turn to crime to pay for it wow. if you, you know, couldn't I mean, afford it, and you yeah, got out. I guess,
1: I guess some people would w- would argue that. Others would say, "Look, it. I, you know, it just. I, I can't. I don't even have the money to be able to live day to day." And 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 then others will say, "Well, wait a minute. You know, like that's that's not really the problem." And it's interesting. Uh, the court ruled it was a seven-two decision, and the and the judges who would have ruled against it there are two judges who uh who sat in dissent as we say justice Cote and justice Rowe they didn't they said look while it may constitute punishment um uh, they didn't feel that it was grossly disproportional they said that uh they don't think it was cruel and unusual punishment and they say that people first like offenders who aren't able to pay they're not going to be subject to enforcement mechanisms there are restrictions there's uh there's extensions etc and so they found that you know the purpose as valid as it was uh should not have been interfered with but uh dissenting judge uh, um, Opinions don't rule the day. It's the it's the majority opinions, and so these the victim surcharge it's gone. It did, no longer is there.
0: Lauren, did the surcharges vary based on the severity of the crime?
1: Well, it it, it also uh, no. It it was really based on uh, a lot of it was based on if depending on what the crime was right. yes and and it also depending on whether or not um uh it, it, what the fine was if there was a if there was any fine that ha- had been levied as well there was there was different mechanisms like and maybe it i think the minimum Kelly could have been something like 100 dollars i think at the very bottom end mm-hmm. but but like the court found uh, even for that for for some people i mean even that was was, was was very onerous, so the purpose was good. It had a very good uh, uh, purpose with respect to um, providing money to victim uh, support services, etc. Uh, but the court said, "No, this is cruel and unusual punishment, and uh, it can't be saved under what we call Section One of the Charter." And they are gone. So, and and as far as what happens from here on in, my understanding was is that the the um, the feds were going to be uh, amending the law as it is. they would have uh, reinstated i think the the discretion of judges to waive the charge, etc but uh, even that bill uh, hadn 't been passed but now uh, the way it looks now is that it 's um, that's it. It's, it's no longer there. And, uh, and so people who are facing that will no longer have to pay that now.
0: It'll be interesting to find out if victims' uh, services groups have something to say about this. Yeah,
1: I, that, and that's a great point, Kelly, and I didn't hear anything today about mm. that. So uh, maybe they need to digest this, and, and it will be interesting. You're absolutely right uh, to hear what they say as to what it may mean to some, some of those services.
0: There's a, a shocking story about uh, one in four convicted murderers, time in minimum security prisons uh, right. that's come out. And this is after, you know, Terry Lynn McClintock was moved to the uh, that that lodge, and uh, her boyfriend, Michael Rafferty, was then uh, found to be moved down right. to a, a minimum or max medium security prison rather than a maximum security prison. But as we're learning, inmates convicted of murder are automatically sent to maximum security facilities for two years. And then... If they're, you know, if they behave well and uh, they are deemed um, to be safe to relocate, they'll move them down to a medium and then even a minimum security institution. Right. They, they say there's 22.5 percent of uh, murderers serving time at a minimum security institution. These yeah. don't even have fences around them.
1: It's, it's- Quite an interesting stat. I don't disagree. I think everybody has to understand how the process works. Once uh, somebody is inside an institution, and then they become the um, uh, they are an inmate, and they're the responsibility for, if it's on a federal level because we're talking about uh, convicted murderers uh, of the federal uh, penal system. What people have to understand is once they are there, uh, it's, it's, those in, it's those government institutions that then that, that have the jurisdiction and indeed the responsibility to deal with issues of classification, meaning are they a, uh, a high risk, a medium risk, or a low risk? Where can they serve their time, etc.? We give those people, through the legislation, the, uh, the ability to make those decisions. Those aren't political decisions. The government... Uh, a, a federal government can't say to uh, Corrections Canada uh, that person is going to be in, uh, in maximum security their whole life. And in fact, Kelly, a judge doesn't even have the discretion to do that. So a judge can say, you'll, you'll hear in a lot of rulings, a judge may say that it's, it's recommended that they serve their sentence at a, at, in, in this type of classification. But at the end of the day, it's the correction um, a ministry that has that final say. So you go, okay, well, that's great, but, but how is it that they're making these decisions mm-hmm. on, on convicted murders? Well, you know, one of the parts of our, our whole sentencing regime and, and it, whether we like it or not, I don't think our friends in the states have the same principles, but one of the principles that we have is rehabilitation. And whether we like it or not, uh, because we look at things, we like to look at things understandably, by the way, all underline understandably from a punitive point of view, especially about somebody who's taken the life or lives of others, um, they still are part of this rubric of sentencing principles, which includes rehabilitation. And so if somebody within the ministry in their wisdom uh, has determined that this person X uh, uh, would benefit from not being in a... a in a high Ma- yeah. maximum security setting and they pose no risk, et cetera, et cetera. They do the, the analysis. Well, there you go. We, we give a lot of government officials that type of discretion to do analysis. Look, look at the parole board. There's a perfect example. Somebody comes up before the parole board and we give them the power to make that decision. Are they going to get out on day parole? Are they going to get out on full parole? Um, and we say, we, we go, no, no, it can't be or, or whatever. Or no, and, and and victims' families, speaking of them, will come to these things. But that's who makes the decision. And we understand the emotional response to it. We understand how the victims' families feel about that. But at the end of the day, it's not the government's role uh, uh, to get involved in, and give orders to say, no, that person can't go.
0: Mm-hmm. It's all about the rehabilitation. Lauren, it's been a pleasure having you on the show again.
1: Hey, it's been a long time.
0: I know, but and, we'll uh, have you, you back soon.
1: Strangers. No, I we're not strangers. Email and I said that name sounds so
0: familiar. Come on. Just kidding. Come on, Lauren. Okay. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks we so will. much for your we help. Will. Cheers. Okay. Lauren Honickman, partner with BTZ Law.